Hi everyone and welcome to the new episode of the Women in Economics Initiative podcast in which we cover the latest research in gender economics and inspiring career paths of female and non-binary economists. I'm Yelena, the events coordinator for the Women in Economics Initiative and your host this season. Today, I'm joined by Audinga Baltrunaite, an economist at the Research Department of the Bank of Italy. Audinga is also a research affiliate at the Center for Economic Policy Research and a member of the AXA Research Lab on Gender Equality at Bocconi University. Her main research areas are public economics, corporate governance, and gender economics. In the first half of today's episode, we'll talk about her career path, and afterwards, we will discuss her research. Dear Audinga, many thanks for accepting my invitation for this podcast episode. I'm delighted to have you as a guest today. Welcome. Hi, Elena, and hi, everybody. I'm, I'm also very excited uh, about being here. It's a great pleasure always to be reached out by somebody telling that uh, they would like to talk to you about what we've done so far. So I'm very pleased. So f- thanks for your nice introduction to myself. So once again, I'm Audinga. So often I like to mention that although my career looks very much uh, Italian-based and Italy-centered, as my name would signal for those who at least once have encountered people from my nationality is I'm Lithuanian, so I'm from Vilnius. Uh, but for a long part of my life, I've been, I've been uh, living abroad. And currently I'm based in Italy, uh, in Rome, actually working as an economist at the Central Bank of Italy. And Helena already mentioned quite extensively what my research is about. Amazing. And thanks again for being our guest today. Uh, I would have to admit that uh, the choice of country where you're living is perfect. <laughs> I, would lo- I would love to join you one day for sure. <laughs> but... So it would be really nice if you could tell us a couple of more words about yourself. Maybe we can slowly open up topics of your educational and career path. So you can really start the story as you please. So thank you. I think uh, it's a good uh, connecting point because the choice of Italy as a country where I ended up living was uh, really not very much planned when uh, I started this path. Well, uh, my, let's say, post-high school education was almost fully based in Italy because after graduating from the high school, I wasn't really sure where to study. I was quite... um, interested in topics such as economics or management, which at the time seemed very similar to me, but the place was really not a clear choice. I had sent out two applications abroad and several others in the country, and I was uh, accepted to Bocconi University to this undergraduate program, which back in the day, as I say, was called Degree in International Economics and Management. And uh, my choice was purely based, well, on the fact that it was a good institution and a good university. But to be very frank, I wasn't really aware how famous uh, it was perhaps within Italy, it was in 2004, and chose it, well, because of prestige, also because I had a scholarship to attend this private and prestigious university, and that seemed as a good opportunity to spend the three years of the undergraduate program. So honestly, the idea was I'm going to be there for, let's say, five semesters, then do one semester abroad as an Erasmus student, and three years later, be back to Vilnius. Well, 
surprisingly enough, things didn't go uh, exactly this way because I stayed for my master's studies uh, in Bocconi as well. And after uh, graduating from the Master of Science in Economics and Social Sciences, uh, which already signals that uh, after three years of undergrad, I realized that economics was my favorite uh, subject rather than management. Um, I also decided to enroll in a doctoral program um, instead of uh, jumping into the labor market. So I did uh, finish, did graduate from a PhD program in Stockholm University mm-hmm. from the Institute in Inter- of International Economic Studies as a political economist. Yes. And after that, well, uh, again, life choices uh, made me come back to Italy and I landed this job um, as an economist at the Central Bank of Italy in their research department. So this is basically what brings me to where I am now in Italy in the end. That is really impressive. And I I have to admit that I enjoy hearing different paths and uh, stories of people and it's always inspiring to me. So Bocconi is absolutely amazing institution and congrats for getting the scholarship and getting the position there. I think that is already a huge signal of your potential back in the days, but also who you have become nowadays. I wanted to ask you, so you first uh, told me that you came here to finish your bachelor studies maybe do semester abroad, and then your initial plan was to go back to your home country. But something happened that has changed your mind. So was it that you enjoyed the culture, the country, or was it maybe due to some professors that got you interested in economics? So what was the trigger to keep you in Italy for your master studies as well? Thank you. So, yeah, well, in fact, my career choices were very gradual. I'm not one of those people who start uh, actually in the last year of the high school knowing perfectly where they will end up in 10 years from now. So I think for me, uh, there were definitely um, several turning points which defined and determined my career. So um, I think one of the semesters in the third year of undergraduate program was very important because I was taught really interesting topics by some great professors. And since, again, since the topic of the talk today is related to gender, mm. one of them was, was really inspiring because I remember I, was, I, I chose one of elective courses to be in the one in development economics, uh, which is very interesting on itself. But on top of that, it was taught by Professor Eliana LaFerrara. And I really remember being there, a third year student, seeing her walk into the class and be always excited about what she was doing. Very clear, very methodological, very inspiring about uh, the topics she was teaching. And I think this was one of the moments when I could envision myself, you know, being interesting in things economists do in a way which also in some sense doesn't make me miserable when sometimes you could think about, you know, all these things are so boring and similar. So I think that was really, she was one of the, you know, I would say maybe the first role model in my career as an economist, uh, which I was lucky, lucky enough to meet at the right time, because then um, I 
applied for a Master of Science program in Bocconi in economics. So again, I left half of what I have covered in my undergrad, which was also, which included also lots of topics in management and focused on economics and pursued a degree, the Master of Science degree in economics and social sciences, which was again of an immense value added to my career and allowed me to grow a lot as an economist, because again, the topics thought were uh, much more um, math-based, rather challenging, but, but really, really interesting. Impressive. I love hearing stories about female role models, because I think that most of us actually have them. Was uh, your professor during your bachelor studies the only one who was your female role model, or um, did you also have some more during your master studies or throughout your education? Well, so I agree with you that role models are extremely important. And uh, this is something which I always advise for students of both genders to have, because it's really important to have a personal connection to some real life person, which could signal to you what, what could be one of the potential paths your career will take. So when I think about role models and especially about uh, female role models, I think I should mention two persons here. So they were my great mentors, co-authors and friends by now, uh, who are Alessandra Casarico and Paola Profeta. So uh, I happened to be involved in one of their research projects basically in the last year of my Master of Science years. And it was not my thesis, it was an additional paper, uh, which basically uh, we wrote together through the following years. So they basically, since by then I was already enrolled uh, and attending the PhD uh, program, their presence and the presence of this paper, which was something I would I was bringing uh, up, <laughs> quote to quote, uh, in parallel, really helped me to first get distracted from only taking exams and thinking about what uh, my dissertation would be about. Second of all, and even most important, I really learned a lot from them. So starting from approach to research uh, about the enthusiasm in you know pushing the paper further because again this is something quite new i think for many phd students because writing research papers takes time like a lot of time um, and also you know the method i learned from both of them how to bring a research idea to a published research paper is something of an immense value to me because I really believe this is, was the first time when I started developed the, developing the skill and uh, and I really think it is of great importance for a successful career in academia or for people who generally attempt to publish uh, papers in peer-reviewed journals. And again, their presence was really important because to be frank, uh, in my PhD program, which was mostly focused on political economics, there were barely no female senior economists at the time when I was there. It was six years of, of a program where I think there was only one uh, full professor, one full female professor in the department. So again, this is to a large extent determined by the choice of a topic, naturally. But <laughs> but having them uh, was, was, I think, uh, really important to me. 
I'm so happy to hear that and I'm happy that everything worked out for you. Both your mentors are really amazing and now I think that I actually got inspiration for some of my future podcast episodes. Maybe one of them would like to be my guest. I once had the opportunity to talk to Paola and she's really, really amazing. You touched a bit upon your PhD which lasted for six years and we know how this period in life is very special but I always like to ask people to reflect upon it and to share their thoughts on it in a sense. What were the most valuable lessons and skills that now you see uh, you gained from your PhD? Right, so I agree. <laughs> the PhD years are really special in one's life and maybe at the time they don't seem to be the most pleasant ones. I think in terms of learning they're among the most important, at least it was my experience. I did not enjoy all of them, but I did learn a lot through a single, every single day throughout the PhD. I think one thing which PhD teaches everybody is persistence mm. because and determination, because that is a skill which is definitely required for anybody who uh, graduates from, uh, from a PhD in economics, because this is one thing you... Uh, you have to have. In terms of things I learned, I would also like to mention something which I think was actually two things. So one thing is related to, well, one of the biggest enemies of mine, which is procrastination, mm -hmm. uh, which is something which I would often describe when I remember my PhD years, when you come to the office and then you start answering all sorts of emails and all the easy tasks, but the last thing you really want to do is to look at how the most important progression of your job market paper turn out. That's the last thing you really want to see. Um, so I remember this tip I got, I don't even remember from whom, was that actually it's, it's a, you could also refer to a quote from Mark Twain is, um, if it is a frog you have to do in your day, you better eat this frog as the first thing in the morning. It's not exactly the quote, but it brings you the sense. So really I remember having this tip is if you sit down with your to-do list, in the morning or on the Monday morning or at any time of your working week and you kind of are eager of doing some tasks and really reluctant to do some other tasks, a really good decision rule is to start from the tasks you are most reluctant to do. And that's really like, you know, I wish I did improve uh, in this. I'm, I'm definitely not perfect up to now, but now if I have to prioritize some tasks, I really use this rule up to now. Really try <laughs> start thinking about, you know, what is the thing which I really would like to do the least? And that's most likely the most important thing. And the second thing, which I think is very specific to a PhD, let's say a PhD student life is to seek or to really cherish positive feedback because that is not easy to get. During the PhD years, you barely ever get any positive feedback on your research. And I think this is something which um, for any person doing any kind of job would be really 
detrimental to their psychological health or really like damaging or really requiring an effort to fight this. So I remember getting this advice from one of the assistant professors in Stockholm. And what he said is that whenever you get an email from somebody saying, oh, thank you for a great TA class you gave today, or uh, well, this was such a nice presentation of the research topic, or I really like the template of the slides you used for the presentation somewhere or any kind of positive feedback you get from your advisors, from your friends, from your mom or from whoever it is, try to make this folder, which I still have in my mailbox. I call it boost folder and try to flag these emails. And when you come to this really bad day, just really like flag this folder, go to that folder and look for, you know, the good things you have, uh, you heard from your peers or from the external, uh, let's say external, from the external world. And that would really, what something which I found, which I found nice. And sometimes you even forget about some emails. Sometimes you do take a look there and like, oh, wow, somebody wrote me an email out of the blue saying, oh, I found your paper about this and that. And it's a great paper. I'm teaching it in my class in, uh, let's say, I don't know, Chile. I think I once I got this. It was amazing. I still have it somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, that's, I think these would be my two tips uh, about how to live through the PhD uh, in a more pleasant way and in a more productive way as to the first tip. This is absolutely amazing and so valuable. I will try to implement both of those. So as soon as we finish our call, I will go and create folder. That's easy. <laughs> uh, but I think it's super valuable, as you say. So for those rainy days when you want to quit. So I think it makes really lots of sense to do that. But also the first one is so powerful. I mean, we really love to say, oh, I really did not have time but the thing is it was not your priority so we need to prioritize every day and our priority number one should be research but i get it that sometimes it's hard i mean rewards come years after you start working on a project and it's so it's a bumpy ride and yeah, it's, it's not easy to keep your motivation high every day, but we are super good at training ourselves to be persistent, as you said. So learning how to prioritize even better is super nice tip from you. Many thanks for that. Right. I also believe it has to do a little bit with self-esteem or self-confidence. And when again, talking about gender differences, women sometimes are oftentimes on average tend to be less self-confident than, than men. And I think this is something which sometimes can tilt, let's say, the priority focus on the tasks which give a more immediate reward, which would be something, doing something, you know, administrative organizing and the seminar series in among the students or doing something else, rather than exposing oneself own research ideas because in some sense it's quite personal as well because it's an idea you had or you and some co-authors had and you are going out into the jungle of economists trying to <laughs> present it explain it and defend it because there is a lot of that as well in the business we are in. that's super true and lessons to be learned for all of us maybe some other questions that we can discuss uh, a bit later throughout our conversation but maybe now we can talk a little bit about your current job and your current position so you're working as a researcher at the central bank of italy can you tell us a bit how 
does that work? <laughs> or, or do you work on, do you do policy work? How much time do you have for research and so on? I, I'm super curious to get to know this position a bit better. Right. Thank you. So I was hired uh, as an economist at the Central Bank of Italy, the Bank of Italy, in their research department, which is called the G Economic Statistics and Research, uh, through the academic job market, because they do uh, this sort of hiring every year since uh, more than a decade. And I landed a position in the unit, which is called Land Economics. So my work is at the central bank, but we also work very closely to our colleagues who are lawyers. So we are a team of lawyers and economists working together. Again, as the title of the unit tells, law and economics has a lot to do with the policy making. So I think that would be, uh, let's say, the keyword which kind of unites the topics which are covered in, in my unit. Again, how, how do we deal with that is that basically we have uh, a part of our day or part of our working time, time overall throughout the year assigned to policy tasks. And the remaining part is assigned to research tasks. So this process is not really formal. We get to do what we get to do. And the time you spend doing research depends on how much of the policy work you do. The policy work depends on what is going on uh, in, in the country, what is going on in the world, which is the season, because again, the Bank of Italy has some uh, periodical publications, the most important of which comes out in the end of May. So actually, the working cycle of our uh, working year is very similar to the academic one, because we start, let's say, in September, thinking about, let's say, research projects and policy papers, which would be useful uh, to have to write mm -hmm. the chapter uh, for which my unit is responsible in the annual report due in May. We work on these papers of both policy-oriented and more research papers throughout uh, the year. Around uh, February, um, we start working on the chapter, which is fed by either results of the policy papers or less, let's say, less sophisticated analysis or very sophisticated, quote-unquote, analysis from the research papers. Then, again, everything concludes with the publishing of this annual report in May. And then throughout the summer, unless sudden events happen and the last three summers have been quite intense with lots of things going on because there were lots of uh, at the pandemic summer where governments threw lots of money especially in Italy into let's say helping the economy to recover or other events these of course shock uh, the, the daily life uh, of an economist at the central bank because we have to provide policy policy notes on that but then uh, the remaining time, again, for summer, as similar to the university life, we get to work on, on research papers. We uh, have ongoing, maybe spend time on revisions, uh, think about the new ideas, because again, in September, the whole cycle starts again. So this is how it works in terms of my personal tasks. In terms of policy work, I cover several subjects, which are very pretty much the same on which I do research. So these would be public procurement, corporate governance, to some extent gender, which can be actually it's more interdisciplinary and can be intertwined in many in many different uh, aspects. So policy work is 
writing policy notes, let's say, to give you an example, on um, the effects of the public procurement code provisions on firm participation in auctions or giving an opinion about the new public procurement code, which is being written now um, and similar, or writing a report about the gender presence in corporate governance uh, positions in Italian banks and firms uh, in the private sector um, and things like that. In terms of research, my research uh, shifted a little bit I, again, I graduated, graduated I, I finished my PhD as a political economist. Now I would describe myself more as a public economist. So most of the topics on which I work would belong to the sphere of public economics, broadly speaking. More precisely, I work on, again, public procurement, uh, corporate governance, gender and several other subfields uh, of these and mostly writing you know papers which are oriented to be published in peer-reviewed international journals amazing thanks a lot for this description i think that this was really comprehensive and it really gave us lots of details of uh, how your working day or actually working cycle looks like how your uh, year looks like and i'm very happy to actually discover one more option for every one of us who is doing our phd at the moment so what we could do after finishing our phd if that is not going to academia but we would still love to do some research i think this is definitely one of the best options you can choose as an economist and i'm actually very happy but also a bit surprised to discover that within the central bank there would be teams of economists who are not working on monetary policy so that's really amazing and I, i would never have such an idea Yeah, so that's the case for the Bank of Italy, and it has been the case since several decades and has a long tradition of doing research and having a rather big, comparative terms, research department compared to other central banks. I think definitely, I'm I'm sure also central banks in France, in Spain have rather big research departments where they cover a broader variety of topics uh, on top of uh, macroprudential policy and, and and so on and so forth, which would be the general idea. So it's worth taking a look at these positions. Then again, one has to, you know, make self-evaluation whether they'd like more to have something which is five, you know, like nine to five job, which is a public service type of job and do policy work, which oftentimes is not something you decide yourself, but this is something which of course is decided at a higher level. Or if on top of research, we would like to choose a purely academic career, go to work in some purely academic institution where though everybody has to have some hours of teaching and teach courses, which again is very, at least in the beginning, is rather time consuming because an important part of their time to preparing classes, seeing classes, answering to students and so on and so forth. It's absolutely true, everything that you've said and that you have summarized for us. And I think that this slowly leads us to the last part of our conversation. 
So we mentioned that for our, so for every one of us who is doing PhD, econ job market is a huge thing. So it doesn't matter whether you would like to go to academia or whether you would like to land a job within certain institutions. So for example, you also have to go through econ job markets to get a position at the Central Bank of Italy. But I also know that you have work in progress and very interesting paper, uh, which is called Women in Economics the role of gendered advising practices with entry in the profession. So you were looking at the outcomes of female and male uh, PhD candidates on their job markets, and you have found something super interesting on the support of their supervisors and how this actually plays role in their placement. So I don't want to give out any more teasers. I would like to give you opportunity to explain us your paper and the results because I found this very interesting, uh, to be honest. Thank you. Really, so so this paper attempts to dig uh, a little bit deeper into the roots of female underrepresentation in economics. So it's, uh, I guess, it has been mentioned many times in your podcast series. We know that women are a minority at all ranks of academia, starting from PhD students, but the gaps get wider once we climb the, the academic ranks. So the share of women is perhaps getting close to 40% among, uh, say, master students, but it's only somewhere above 10% when we look among full professors. So, you know, this leaky pipeline phenomena has been investigated by the economists. What we do is we try to to shed light on one very specific step, which is the transition uh, from the PhD program to the labor market. And we know that, well, there are many gender differences along many dimensions, but what we were wondering is whether some implicit gender stereotypes or biases, more precisely among senior professors, could have an impact on the initial placement of PhD students uh, on their junior uh, job market in economics. So um, this is the project I'm working on at the moment, so I'm very still excited about it. So what we did is first we did a lot of data collection work, which was essentially gathering over um, 8,000 application packages from three departments, which are hiring um, internationally. So the three departments are based in Italy, but they are hiring on the international job market. So from these application packages, we could, on the one hand, obtain uh, the content of reference letters, of course, anonymized for these students of different gender. And on the other hand, having access to their CVs, which they submitted with their job market applications, back out some characteristics of theirs, for instance, their educational background, the field of interest, and several others. And then using modern text analysis tools, we are able to measure the tone of the letter when it comes to highlighting candidates' personal characteristics. In particular, building on the literature on psychology, we know that uh, women often tend to be associated with hardworking and persistent character and skills, which is named grindstone characteristics, whereas men tend to perhaps be less diligent or tend to be thought as less diligent, but 
more brilliant mm. and these exceptional stars in uh, what they do. So these would be standout characteristics according to psychologists. So when we look at the measures of the language which is used to refer to the candidates of different gender, we see that sponsors or let's say students advisors tend to more often highlight grindstone characteristics for female students, but more often highlight standout characteristics for their male students, which is in line with one would expect when we look at, let's say, evidence from the psychology literature. What is, I guess, even more uh, striking is that as a second part of the analysis, we combine these measures with the subsequent career paths of uh, job market applicants, which allows us to see which positions and in which kind of institutions they land. Mm -hmm. What we find, in fact, is quite striking is that although at the face value, both being hardworking and excellent or brilliant would seem to be positive characteristics for a successful researcher's career, we see that there is a positive association with landing a successful job with standout characteristics, but a negative association for uh, grindstone characteristics, suggesting that this, let's say, gendered description of character traits of uh, candidates of different gender uh, may in fact contribute to the fact that we know once you climb the career steps, at some steps there are implicit gender biases which hamper the success of female candidates. And that is a quite striking result because, well, on the one hand, it's not obvious that everybody's aware of that. So I think it is quite important that these things are discussed and perhaps this could also give some policy implications in how letters of reference are written to candidates on the job market, because as the paper shows, there can be negative consequences for female economists due to these types of descriptions. Wow, this is really powerful result, and I'm not happy to learn about it. I think that not many people are aware of this, and hopefully word with will spread around and people will start discussing this. Hopefully also supervisors might change the style of uh, how they write their recommendation letters, but it definitely goes in line with what one can hear at departments when you talk about female colleagues, they're, oh, she's super hardworking, she's a great teacher, she gives excellent tutorials. But on the other hand, when we mention male colleagues, they're brilliant, they're amazing, they understand things so well. Yeah, I can see that those biases, even in everyday conversations, but of course, in the end, end up uh, in recommendation letters, which definitely determine what kind of job you get in the end. Yeah, um, you know, it's an exciting project to work on because of the type of analysis we can do because it's very rich and basically we start from a completely unstructured non-data because this is just a bunch of applications and we reach a conclusion which, well, uh, on the one hand is something which you might expect, but on the other hand is something on which having sound evidence is very important. So hopefully this would help uh, feeding uh, policy debate to some extent. 
I'm really looking forward to following the update and even not even sure whether there is first draft out there. So I will keep an eye on your website. And when new school year starts, I might send it around our faculty and hopefully spark some discussion because I think that every department should actually discuss this because this is really important. Unless we discuss it, we will not even be aware that there is a problem. Definitely. But if we discuss it, we, we might realize that it will not be very costly to change. So it's just to be more mindful when uh, writing your letters of recommendation and be uh, more precise when describing characteristics of candidates. So hopefully we'll be wiser in recommendation letters uh, <laughs> in the future from the perspective of our supervisors. Amazing. Many thanks for sharing this amazing paper with us. I definitely invite everyone who is interested in gender work to follow you and to follow your work. Can you maybe share with us? Do you have Twitter? Yeah, there's Twitter. Uh, it's Audingus1, I think. I'll send it to you. And also regarding this paper, the CPR working paper should be out this week or next week. And then we will circulate it around hopefully before everybody goes on vacation in August. Or <laughs> Actually, important summer read for lots of us. So many thanks for you know, pushing that before summer holidays. That's valuable. When we touched upon summer holidays... I would really be happy to hear recommendations from you when it comes to maybe books or podcasts by female economists that you could recommend us to add to our summer reading list or listening list. That would be amazing. Right. Okay, so I thought about it a little bit, but it was not an easy task. Because also there are many, you know, it's hard to pick one contribution by a female economist because there have been many and on different uh, let's see, topics and in different spheres. So what I decided is that uh, my recommendation will be very personal. So that will be the latest thing which I was listening to. And, and that turned out to be a good experience, but that's uh, rather specific. Why? Um, it's a book, an audiobook to which I listened to by Emily Oster which is uh, expecting better so i'm expecting now so i was listening to this book and i found it really eye-opening because it, what it provides is it provides a, a researcher's approach to many of the medical guidelines given to women during their pregnancy she has some books about child raising so that might not be very see, topical for PhD students at the time because maybe not everybody uh, has or, or is planning to have kids but if you are i think it's a really let's say sharp and informed point and or opinion on something which is oftentimes surrounded by very many uh, let's say stereotypes concepts which are heard from somebody and circulating around i think what she gives in this book is clarity which is um, and then one has to take their own decisions so it has a part about the decision making but what she does present is a bunch of facts from medical literature for instance and from a bunch of other things so that one can make an informed decision so i guess for any researcher that's actually that's i think um a really good example of how a book written by an economist can be read by people who are just informed citizens willing to make decisions in an informed way and it's really practical easy to read even for a non-economist so i think it's a nice contribution because 
something which is important for a big fraction of population and it's a good example of how to pitch evidence which us as economists are able to understand and used to reading to say a much broader audience so i think it's something which i would recommend and again it's not the book written by a female economist you would perhaps imagine but for those interested it's something which i found uh, very useful in the latest uh, time Many thanks for this recommendation as well. Sounds super interesting to me. I will link the book um, in the description of this podcast episode such that people will be able to find it more easily. It brings us to the end of our conversation. I have to thank you one more time for being my guest today, for a very inspiring conversation, for all tips and tricks you have shared with us. So first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to make my booth folder as soon as we finish our call and start prioritizing a bit better. But also many thanks for your great efforts in the research uh, area. I'm really looking forward to following your work and maybe hosting you a couple of more times in the future when some more interesting research projects come. So I hope that our audience enjoyed as well. I'm actually sure of that. Uh, thanks much again for being my guest today and goodbye to everyone. Thank you very much and goodbye. The views expressed in WE podcasts are those of the interviewers and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of the organization, its partners, other members, or any other affiliated people and organizations. We'd also like to thank Maddie Stevenson for writing and recording our original theme song. For anyone who would like to learn more about the Women in Economics initiative, please find us online as well as on most social media channels.